You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. told you I'm not going to wear that. So the kids did the uh, armor of God today, and they have their armor of God. My daughter would like me to wear this as I preach, but I I will not do that. I will not do that. Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. Are you doing well this morning? Good to see you guys. Looks like the cold has kept some people away this morning for some reason. Do what? Or daylight savings. Yes, I forgot about that. See, if you got the iPhone, though, I mean, it's automatic, right? It, it, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, so uh, Stephen mentioned the Connect table back there. Doesn't it look great? I, I love uh, love that table. Thanks to Paula and 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 Stephen and and Carrie. I know was involved, and I don't know who else was involved. If anybody else was involved, but thank you guys. It looks really really great. And uh, be sure to check that out on your way in, out this morning. Um, we've really had a, a wonderful and, and packed weekend as a as a church body this weekend with. Men's and women's breakfast yesterday. Um, we had to miss that for a sewage issue, unfortunately. So, um, but I think those went went well. And uh, then on Friday night, we uh, showed the movie Sabina here uh, from Voice of the Martyrs, and uh, I know that was a blessing for for everyone who got to attend. Uh, you know, that's such a powerful movie of. Of, of the transformation and the forgiveness that, that is available to each of us in Christ. If you weren't able to come Friday, I, we have access to that movie if you want to see it. Um, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, just let me know. We've got a DVD. We've got a digital copy, whatever works for you. Um, so, yeah, just let me know if, you, if you'd like to, uh, to still see that. That's still available to you. Now, this morning, we're ready to kind of round out this weekend with worship and it's already been a a powerful time of worship through song and uh, so let's continue that I'm gonna ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 18 John 18 and remember with me that that Jesus has now been arrested and is on trial to determine his fate and this trial has Six phases, if, if you remember. Um, John records for us the first phase before Annas, who, remember, was a previous high priest in Israel, but still had a lot of power, even after being deposed by the Romans. After that, Matthew and the other Gospels, um, they record two other trials before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin, which, remember, was the governing body of the Jews, and then Caiaphas, who's the reigning high priest, the current high priest at that time. And so Matthew and the other Gospels record those two 
um, trials as well, or those two phases of this trial. And then John picks it back up with the fourth phase, uh, the trial before Pilate, the Roman governor of, of Judea. Now, remember why this case is being brought before Pilate to begin with. The Jewish leaders absolutely hate Jesus. Uh, Jesus, for them, is, is a threat to them. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their rule over the people. Not only that, but, but Jesus, on many occasions, has called out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, and, and they don't like that very much. Nobody likes to be called out on their, on their sin, right? Nobody likes that. Um, and, and certainly they didn't like Jesus running around um, calling them out on their hypocrisy, which he was absolutely uh, true and right to do that. But they hated him for it. Um, and, and so these, these leaders want Jesus dead. These Jewish leaders want him dead. They're sick of his influence. And they have refused to submit to him as the Son of God. But in order to put him to death, their law requires them to bring Jesus before the Romans and before Pilate. Uh, because only, only Rome technically had the power to um, put someone to death. Even though we, we kind of talked last time about some exceptions to that. But, but technically only Rome was able to put people to death. The Jews were not allowed to do that. So, so here we are. Uh, we started in verse 28 last time. And... Um, the Jews are approaching the residence of, of Pilate, the governor. We got through about verse 32, I think, last time. So um, stand with me. We're going to go ahead and read. Uh, we're just going to read verses 28 um, through 40. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have deliver, delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying of what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for this church family. We thank you for this word, Lord. God, I ask that you would speak your word to us this morning. Please move me out of the way. Please remove distractions this morning, God. And um, You just speak your truth to your people, God. Don't let anything get in your way this morning. And Lord, we love you. We pray that you be glorified by the rest of this service. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you can have a seat. Well, last time we started off this section by looking at the arrival. That was our first point last time in verse 28. And we talked about the absolute hypocrisy shown by the Jews as they arrive at the praetorium, uh, which is Pilate's residence again. Uh, And they've got Jesus in custody. And it says that the Jews came to the praetorium, but they would not go in because they did not want to be defiled on Passover by going into the house of a Gentile. Now, they are illegally putting to death the innocent Son of God, yet they are so concerned about their external purity. The hypocrisy and the evil of these religious leaders is absolutely putrid. It's it's disgusting. And we, we kind of discussed that in depth last time. Um, and, and as they approach, Pilate asks them what accusations they bring against this man, Jesus, which, which, which brought us to our second point, the allegations. And, and this catches the Jews a little bit off guard. Uh, they were expecting Pilate to just accept their judgment, not ask any questions, and, and put this man to death. I think that's what they expected. But Pilate, um, having some sense of, of, of justice, he... He intends to have his own trial with Jesus. And we're reminded here that God is in control and he's sovereign over every single detail of what happens here. The Jews need the Romans to kill Jesus because, number one, they need to not be responsible for the death of Jesus, but they need Jesus to die. They need someone to blame. They need to blame the Romans When the crowds of people who follow Jesus want to revolt against them. They need to be able to look at the Romans and say it was them, not us. And number two, they wanted Jesus to be crucified. Because Deuteronomy says that cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And it was only the Romans who crucified. The Jews did not crucify people. But John reminds us here in verse 32 that although this is what the Jews wanted, they wanted his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, the real reason uh, this was happening in this way was to fulfill the prophecy which Jesus spoke when he said that he would be lifted up in death, speaking of his crucifixion. And we talked a lot about that last time. John continues to remind us in in his book, in the Gospel of John, of the complete sovereignty of God. Uh, He he reminds us time and time again throughout his Gospel. It is a focus for sure. And so we looked at the allegations there. And then uh, this morning, as we start new material in verse 33, we're going to look at the analysis. The analysis. Now, as I said earlier, Pilate has no intention of simply signing off on what the Jews desire for him to do and and, and putting this man to death. 
he intends to conduct his own investigation, his own interview with Jesus, and, and perform his own analysis of the situation. And so here, Pilate begins to investigate. But what we notice in this section is, is that there's not just one investigation, uh, one analysis going on. While, while Pilate is analyzing Jesus, Jesus is, more importantly, analyzing Pilate. He's investigating and interviewing Pilate as well as, again, an absolute act of grace towards Pilate. We notice by the questions that Jesus asked and his answers to Pilate that while Pilate is after a verdict, Jesus is after Pilate's heart here. Jesus wants Pilate to know the truth. And this is the man who, on the very next page of your Bible, is going to be the one who pronounces Jesus' death sentence. Yet Jesus wants him saved. I, I don't know about you, but I've been just overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus throughout this study through John. It's not just grace for those who obey and believe. It's unbelievable grace even for his enemies that they might be drawn to himself. We've seen it so many times, and here we'll see it again. Pilate opens the questioning in verse 33, and he says to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is a very relevant question for Pilate's purposes. This is an important question for him to ask. Remember last time that, that the Jews did finally come up with an accusation against Jesus. Um, they finally came up with something that might be of interest to Pilate which was that they said that he claimed to be king. Which is true, he did claim to be a king. Now, Pilate couldn't care less about Jesus claiming to be God, or, or Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, or Jesus claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. Pilate doesn't care at all about that. That's irrelevant for what Pilate's trying to accomplish here. But what would be relevant is if Jesus is claiming to be a king who wishes to rebel against Rome, who wishes to revolt, who wishes to overtake the Romans. However, Pilate already knows that the Jews would not be delivering up someone to be killed just for rebelling against the Romans. The Jews don't care about that. Or the Jews aren't interested in, in turning in someone for rebelling against Rome. They don't care about that. They don't like Rome either. The other Gospels also tell us that, that Pilate knew that the Jews' motive was simply envy. Their motive was envy. They, they were jealous of Jesus. But Pilate here is doing his due diligence, and, and he investigates the claim of Jesus being a king, Jesus being an insurrectionist. So he says this, he says, you are king of the Jews. That's really how the, the Greek grammar reads it. You, uh, this guy is king of the Jews? Really? Evidently, Jesus did not look like much of a king. He didn't look like much of a threat to Pilate. And that's consistent with what the Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before. Remember about the coming of the Messiah. He has no form or comeliness. He has no beauty that we should look at him. That's what Isaiah said. He doesn't look like a powerful king. And he didn't. On top of that, Jesus was willingly arrested 
and brought to Pilate with, 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 with no fight, even telling his disciples, remember, to stand down. So Pilate is essentially saying, how, how can you be king? How can you be the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds with a question of his own. He says, are you asking for yourself or did others tell you this? Now, if, if Pilate is asking for his own purposes, meaning, are you a king who is a threat to Rome? The answer is, is no, right? Jesus is not a threat to Rome. But if Pilate is asking if he is the Jewish Messiah, then Jesus' answer would have to be yes, he is. He's not a threat to Pilate's earthly kingdom, but he is a king. In fact, he's the king, right? The king of kings. But I think here Jesus also is after Pilate's heart. He's asking Pilate if he's genuinely seeking this answer for himself. Is Pilate humbly asking this question or, or is he just investigating Jesus knows, of course, but, but he's extending grace to Pilate here. And Pilate rejects it. He says, am I Jew? Am I a Jew? I don't care about these things. I, uh, do you think I care about the Jewish Messiah? Well, what is that to me? He's saying, I just need to do this investigation to appease the Jews while also not putting an innocent man to death. He doesn't want to do that. Uh, Pilate is not interested in what Jesus is extending here. He's not interested in his grace. And he ends by saying, what have you done? That is, what have you done to get here? What have you done to make them so angry? What have you done? And Jesus answers Pilate's question like this. My kingdom is not of this world. But that's what I've done. And that's what he told the Jews earlier in John. He said, your kingdom is of this world, my kingdom is not. And that's what he's done. He has different priorities than the Jews. He goes on to say that if, if, um, if, if, this kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But you don't see us fighting. There's nothing to see from that viewpoint. There's no threat to Rome here. This whole narrative of Jesus' unjust trial and his crucifixion is about this point here that Jesus makes. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate's kingdom is of this world. And, and the Jewish leader's kingdom is of this world. You know, the Jews had every opportunity to not miss their Messiah. The prophet Daniel even predicted the very day of his arrival as king of Israel. The Old Testament foretold of the tribe he would come from, uh, the location, the time, the method. And the Jewish leaders knew these scriptures. And they still missed him. The Gospels tell us that, that the leaders knew Jesus was from God. And they knew he was from God. They knew he was who he said he was. And they still missed him. How? How did they miss him? 
the question non-believers often ask. How did they miss him? If this, if this prophecy is so clear, how did they miss him? Because their kingdoms were of this world, simply put. Their kingdoms were of this world. Everything for them revolved around worldly fame, worldly fortune, worldly honor, worldly comfort. And when Jesus began to threaten their chokehold over the Jewish people, they had to justify his murder by any means necessary. Uh, The Pharisees were not just these pious, wonderful men. Yes, they knew Scripture, but they hated it. They hated God the Father. Of course, they would never say that. That's what Jesus says, right? They were just going through the motions to gain influence. And they didn't truly care about God the Father. That's why they missed God the Son. Their kingdom was of this world and not of heaven. They knew he was God, and yet they failed to recognize him as such. Because they were living for a dot, I've used this analogy many times, a dot on a never-ending line of eternity. They were living for this short life. That Everything they were living for was that. These 70, 80 years. And they weren't living for the rest of it. What is next? They were not living for eternity. Pilate was the same. He, he didn't plot the death of Jesus. And, and he even tried to get out of doing it. He tried. But ultimately, as, as we'll see, Pilate caved into the pressure of the Jews. He knew Jesus was innocent. He says that several times. We'll see that. But he put him to death anyway. Why? Because his kingdom was of this world. He cared more about his position during this short life than about his soul. That's the bottom line with Pilate. If he released Jesus, as we'll see, the the Jewish leaders would have revolted. If he just gave Jesus back to them and said, this man's innocent, take him back, they would have revolted. They wouldn't have allowed that to happen. And Pilate would have been deposed as governor for not keeping the peace in his region. And so while he desired for good, he desired for justice, I think he really did, he folded to pressure because he honored earth's kingdom above heaven's kingdom. Just like the Jews. It's not that he didn't want to do the right thing. He just wanted the comforts of his earthly kingdom more. Matthew records that that God even terrorized Pilate's wife with dreams that warned Pilate not to touch this man. Don't kill Jesus. Remember, uh, his wife sends to Pilate when he's on the judgment seat, getting ready to announce his judgment. His wife sends to him and says, don't have anything to do with this man. I've been terrorized all night with these dreams. Boy, that is grace. And that is the grace of God once again, isn't it? What grace once again to warn Pilate again. 
this man is innocent. But Pilate caved to the pressure, as God knew he would cave to the pressure. God didn't make him cave to the pressure, but God knew he would cave to the pressure. We're going to see that pressure mount as we progress through this narrative. But the bottom line is that Pilate and these Jewish leaders, as, as Matthew 6 puts it, they were storing up for themselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy rather than in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where nothing can destroy. And, and Jesus says there in that passage, He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how about us this morning? And Stephen's talked a lot about this through John, but, but where is our treasure? Where is your treasure? Well, you make a lot of decisions about what is truth and what is not truth based on where your treasure is. That's what, that's what these guys did. Well, you rationalize a lot of things based on where your treasure is. Where is your treasure? Does your life proclaim that, that, you tr that your treasure is in heaven? And that you've got your eyes firmly fixed on that? As Christians, do, do we realize that like Jesus, our kingdom is in heaven? And our kingdom is not here. Philippians 3, uh, starting verse 20, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to even to subdue all things to Himself. And Paul goes on to say, starting the next chapter there, chapter 4, he says, therefore, my brethren, stand fast in the Lord. Because this is true, because your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. It's in another place. Stand fast in the Lord. Hold fast to what is true. In other words, as Jesus put it, seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. All these other things you worry about, that is. Ephesians 2, verse 6, like the verse in Philippians, indicates that we, as believers, are in some sense somehow already seated with Christ in heaven. It says, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're already there somehow. Now, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know how heaven works. I don't understand. But as believers, your salvation is so certain, so sure of a thing that, that it's like you're already there. And in some sense, you are. Already there. And so if we're already there, why do we hold on so tightly to this world? Why do we hold on so tightly to everything in this world? You know, that's why we struggle with forgiveness. Because 
when it comes down to it, our kingdoms are of this world and not of heaven. And that was the most powerful part of the Sabina movie, and I'm going to spoil it for some of you perhaps, but when she is able to hug and forgive the very man who, who murdered her family. That doesn't happen if you're living for this world. If your kingdom is here, that can't happen. Your kingdom has to be in another place. Because if my kingdom is here, everyone that comes against that kingdom must die. They must suffer. And if he made my family suffer, he must suffer. That doesn't happen if your kingdom is here. If, you're, um, if your kingdom is in heaven, forgiveness is possible. No matter what that forgiveness may, might entail. And sometimes for many of you it may entail something very deep and terrible. Maybe something you've never told anyone in your life. And something that was the most hurtful thing you can imagine anyone going through. And if your kingdom is here, and forgiveness is impossible. But if my kingdom is in eternity, I can, like Christ, forgive even the deepest of hurts. And it's not easy. It's still not easy. It still takes the Holy Spirit of God in us, right? But it's possible with an eternal mindset but most of us, if we're honest, our kingdom from day to day, it seems to be here, even as Christians. That's why we struggle with trusting God with our finances, many of us. Because if we're honest, we'd rather have more here to build our kingdom. And that makes sense if your kingdom is here. That makes sense, perfect sense. I don't blame you. Based on your logic. Yes, do not give anything to church, goodness. If your kingdom is here, build your kingdom. But if your kingdom is eternity, God calls us to live sacrificially. And you can rationalize that however you need to rationalize it this morning. But at the end of the day, we, we need to call sin what it is. And when we choose to store up treasures for ourselves here on earth while not being concerned about the eternal kingdom, we're just proving that our kingdom is truly of this world. And I'm not saying you're, you're not a believer this morning. But I am saying that maybe it's time for a change. Maybe it's time for some reflection on that. We struggle so much with suffering, don't we? That's another thing. The concept of suffering. Why suffering even exists. Because in our minds, God's ultimate goal should be to make us happy. Why is that not His goal? For me to be comfortable here. Because if we're honest, this is where our treasure is. Sometimes. 
And if my treasure is here, why is God not making me have more treasure? Why are not better things happening in my life? I see God has something so much better. And it is spiritual. And and you can't touch it and see it, not now at least. You can't see it and, and touch it. Right? It's not tangible. It will be. It's future. Now there are moments when, when the Spirit supernaturally it just assures us, doesn't he? And those things are tangible. Those are things you can feel, but you can't you can't hold it in your hands. This 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 heavenly kingdom, you can't hold it in your hands. God has something so much better in the future, and it's going to blow our minds. It's going to change everything for the way we think. And guys, we just have to believe the Apostle Paul when he says through the Spirit that this light and momentary suffering is nothing to be compared to the glory that is coming for believers. We just we have to hold on to those promises. I love that part of the movie on Friday too where, where they're scared. And they're not trying to pretend like they're not scared. But what he does is, is he, he looks at Scripture and every single verse that talks about not fearing. He writes it down on an index card and he rehearses them. And when he's scared, he's got one for every day, 365 of them. And when he's scared, what does he do? He doesn't pretend like he's not scared. He lets the word embolden him and remind him of where his kingdom is. He lets God reassure him there's no reason to be scared. This is just earth. It's just earth. It's just a few years, and it can be wonderful. There can be joys, certainly. It can also be awful, can't it? There can be, a, there can be terrible suffering. We need to be reminded that it's just earth. It's not where your kingdom is. God is concerned about that kingdom, you see? So whatever he needs to do on this earth for you to get you more concerned about that kingdom, he's willing to do that. Because it's just earth. There are more important things. Eternally more important things. We just have to take him at his word that it's going to be worth it. Whether that's comfortable for us or not. Whether we can fully wrap our minds around it or not. I don't think we can, really. But our kingdom is not here. Your kingdom was never intended to be here. Non-believers, your kingdom is not supposed to be here. This kingdom just crumbles. This is also why we struggle so much with worry. Because we care too much about the things of this world. Now, I'm, not, I'm of course, 
not suggesting that we don't care at all about the things of this world and, and the things going on in our lives and our children and our families and our health. And it's good to care about these things and be good stewards of these things. And God cares about those things. In fact, the Bible says, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. He cares for every detail, every little thing that, it, that is of concern to you. He's concerned about it. He just has a better perspective on it. But boy, we, we just need to control everything, don't we? We just need to control every detail of our lives or we're going to worry. And yeah, I'm talking to me. Maybe I'm talking to some of you guys too. It's just not biblical. It's not biblical to need so much control of your life. It just shows again that your kingdom, your treasure is here. And it's not eternity. And it's not like, guys, I mean, I mean most of us in this room, if we ask, where's your kingdom? What are you living for? We'd say heaven. And most of our life would show that. But there's those moments, though, aren't there? There's maybe a lot of them. And in those moments, we forget. We forget about, about our real kingdom. And, man, it becomes about this. And I'm so overwhelmed and the stress is just, and what do I do? And, oh, my goodness, I don't have control. And we worry. And we rationalize the worry. We say, oh, at least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not a liar. I'm just a worrier. I, come on. Come on. God, that's not so bad, is it? Again, let's get real with the sin in our lives. We must call worry sin. Because that's what Jesus calls it. There's no reason to rationalize our worry. You won't ever see a need to change it then. And, and if we don't start trusting the Lord more, those of us who worry so much, we're going to miss out on so much blessing. How much we miss out on because we're so worried about everything. How much peace that is freely offered do we miss out on because we're so worried about this earthly kingdom? Jesus wants you to be in peace. He doesn't want you to be worried. But we're going to have to realize we don't have that much control. And our kingdom is not here. And there's something so much better. And that's what we've got to live for. And that's a moment-by-moment -moment struggle for those of us who worry. I confess to you, it's been one of my biggest struggles in, in life. And over the years, I, I, God has given me some victory over it. But still, still there's those moments where I've just got to have that control, don't I? And what am I showing there? I'm showing that I'm too concerned. My treasure is too much here and not enough there. It's too much here and not enough 
there. Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He also tells his disciples, you are not of this world. You understand as a believer, you are not of this world. And as a non-believer, you're not intended to be of this world. There's something so much more. Are you living for that? You know, Jesus is exhausted here. He's been up all night, remember? He's been mocked, beaten, spat upon already, paraded around like a dog. And he is God. Now, how many of us would be ready to take our earthly kingdom into our own hands at that point? There's no way I could be Jesus. I'll tell you that right now. There's no way that I could have done that. There's no way any of us could have, right? I mean, he's fully God. He's fully human. He's fully God. But I'd be ready to take my kingdom into my hands at that moment. I'm not waiting until the second coming, no. It's, this has got to go now. These people are evil. But Jesus, he had eternity in focus at all times. He had love in focus. He had the heavenly kingdom in focus. If there was ever a temptation for Jesus, wasn't it this embarrassing trial where he's being humiliated? How shamefully they treated the Son of God, and yet he said not a word for our sakes. Because he had perfect understanding that his kingdom and our kingdom is not of this world. Let us learn from Jesus. Pilate responds to Jesus, are are you a king then? Probably more uh, more appropriately, so so you are a king. Jesus said he's a king. Just not in the sense that Pilate thinks. And Jesus hits him with more truth. He says, he says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Did you catch the incarnation there? God taking on flesh. He says, I was born as any other man is born, fully human. I came into this world as one sent from heaven. He says it two ways because they're both true. He's fully God, fully man. And what is his cause? He says that I should bear witness to the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. He says everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He is the truth. And if we are of the truth, if we are truly, humbly seeking the truth, we will hear his voice. Pilate wasn't. He wasn't humbly seeking the truth. Many will say they are seeking the truth, but there is no humility in their pursuit of the truth. Many will say they seek the truth while making every possible excuse not to believe in Christ because He can't be the truth. Because He is exclusive. And He says that without Him I can do nothing. And He says that without Him I'm going to suffer eternity in hell. And many cannot handle that. 
Many see, say, I'm seeking the truth, but what they really mean is I'm seeking the truth as long as it isn't Jesus. That's not humility. When you ignore every piece of evidence in front of you, because it can't be Jesus, you will not find the truth. You will not hear His voice. Not because God did not, not because God chose you for hell, but because you will not humbly submit yourself to even the possibility of truth. But that's Pilate here. He's got attitude in his voice here. What is truth? He's not asking so Jesus can tell him. He doesn't care. He's making a statement that to him there is no absolute truth. There's no objective truth. There cannot be. Well, Pilate sounds like he's transported to 2022, doesn't he? That is our thing here. There, There cannot be absolute truth because then people are offended. Because if there's truth, absolute truth, then there's error. And error is going to cost you something. In this case, it's going to cost you eternity. If Jesus is true, then all others are false. Because he calls himself the exclusive truth. Others don't do that. Jesus does. There is none other. He is the only way to the Father. The only way to heaven. The only truth. All others must be false. And why is that true? Because all others say that we can work our way to God. Or even you can be a God. Or maybe that there is no God, which really means I just want to be my own God. But the thing is, we're all weighed down with this guilt and this shame, and and, and we're, we're not like animals. We can't just go around and do whatever we want to do and not feel bad about it. We're not animals. We have higher thinking. We know we're messed up. And it haunts us. We know we're not worthy. We know there's something wrong. We know we sin. We know we do stuff wrong. Every human knows this. And guess what? If there's sin, then we need a Savior. It needs a payment. Sin must be taken out of the way or we cannot know God. We cannot know truth. And Jesus is the only way. He's the only one who has taken it out of the way. Or whoever could. Because He is fully God and He's fully man. Representing mankind to God yet somehow bearing the weight of all of our sin. In Him alone we find our being and our worth and the absolute truth. You will not find it anywhere else. But just like the Jews, Pilate misses the mark. He scoffs at the thought, at the thought of truth. What is truth? He fails to hear and obey the voice of God. 
not for lack of grace, not for lack of a fair chance, but for pride. As far as we know, Pilate dies without ever knowing the truth. It's thought that he, he committed suicide. Why? Because he had no hope. If there is no truth, there is no hope. He rejected the hope, the, the sure hope when he was confronted with it. And don't believe for a moment that Jesus did not want him to be saved. He did. But Pilate would not. The Jews would not. Pilate, when he's finished with his analysis, he, he goes out to the Jews and says, I find no fault in him at all. He is innocent. We're going to see Pilate say that several times throughout this section. Yet we know the outcome, don't we? So after, after the analysis, let's finally look at the accommodation. The accommodation. Now, between verses 38 and 39, there's a pause. After Pilate declares Jesus innocent, the Jews are not happy. And, and according to Luke's account, amongst the yelling in the crowd, Pilate finds out that Jesus finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. And Galilee is not Pilate's region. That's Herod's region. And so he sends him to Herod, who's, who's also in Jerusalem, clearly. He's also obviously not very far away, because this all happened in a very short span of time. So Pilate punts to, to Herod. He tells the Jews to take, take him to Herod, um, seeing that they're not satisfied with, with his answer. His answer is they're innocent. They're, he's innocent. So Luke records that, that account with Herod. And Herod was glad to see him. And Herod was glad to see him because he had heard the stories of Jesus. He had heard of the miracles. Maybe he witnessed some of the miracles. I don't know. And like many who followed Jesus, Herod wanted Jesus to do something for him. Show me a miracle. You see, you can see all the miracles. You can, you, can, you, can, you can hear all the stories of all the raisings from the dead, all of the healings. You can know this to be true and still reject it. Because when your kingdom is of this world, you will rationalize whatever you want to rationalize. You're not paying attention to evidence. Herod was not paying attention to evidence. He said, Jesus, I want you to show me a miracle. I'm glad you're here. Jesus doesn't perform a miracle. He says nothing, in fact. Herod questions him. Um, with many words, it says, Jesus doesn't say anything. And then Herod and his soldiers mock Jesus, and they send him back to Pilate. And starting in verse 39 of John 18, we see the final phase. This is the last phase of Jesus' trial. As Pilate, um, he's got to come up with something else now to figure this out. Pilate declares Jesus' innocence and says that Herod also found him innocent. That's what it says in the other Gospels, in uh, Luke. He's found no fault in him at all. And, and if Pilate was truly committed to justice, he could have ended it right here. He could have let Jesus go and maintained a, a sense of justice. 
but he's scared. Pilate is scared. I mentioned last time that Pilate had already had a couple of run-ins with the Jews where he failed to keep the peace. And so his superiors were not very happy with him. And so he is, he's, he's on thin ice, and he's motivated to keep these leaders happy. If he let Jesus go, the Jews would be livid, and they would get him in severe trouble. He, he's in a tough spot here. From, a, from an earthly perspective, certainly. If your kingdom is of this earth, man, you are in a tough spot. He's, he, he would risk losing his livelihood, potentially losing his life, if he lets Jesus go here. But he would have been on the side of truth. But as we said before, Pilate's kingdom was of this world. What he could see and touch and feel what is here and now. And he threw away his eternity to be pleasing to men. How many in this life have made the same fatal error? Even as Christians, how much heavenly reward have we forfeited because we wanted to please man over pleasing God? How many opportunities have we missed to, to witness to people because the bottom line is we wanted to please man more than we wanted to please God. We see here that rather than just letting Jesus go and trusting God with the consequences, Pilate accommodates the Jews. He tries to come up with a compromise, some appeasement for them. And so someone mentions the idea to Pilate that he's to release a prisoner each year at Passover. This was their custom, evidently. And Pilate sees this as his chance. By promising to release Jesus on account of this custom, rather than by declaring his innocence, Pilate could avoid insulting the Jewish leaders. Because they've already decided that, he's guilt, that Jesus is guilty. So maybe Pilate could convince the crowds uh, to release Jesus if he brought a vile enough sinner, criminal, um, to take his place here. And we'll see that this is only the beginning of Pilate trying to compromise with the Jews, trying to, trying to accommodate the Jews while ignoring what he knows to be right. So here he brings out Barabbas, and Barabbas is a notorious, wicked criminal. John calls him a robber. The other Gospels call him a murderer. His murders were committed as part of an insurrection attempt against Rome. Now, Jesus is being tried for insurrection, of which he is completely innocent, of course. But Barabbas is a true, convicted, murdering insurrectionist. And there's so much irony here in this case of, of Barabbas. Pilate gives the crowd a choice. Do you want me to release Barabbas or Jesus? Now, the name Barabbas, it means son of the father. Bar means son. Abba means father. Son of the father. And God could not plan that any more perfectly. The crowd now has the choice between Barabbas son of the Father, and Jesus, the true and only begotten Son of the Father. 
God the Father. So the chief priests stir up the fickle crowd and they start crying, not this man, but Barabbas. Unbelievable, the fickleness of these people, the evil in their hearts. I don't miss what's happening here. They choose a convicted, proven insurrectionist to be released to them. They choose the very person that they're falsely claiming Jesus to be. The very same sin. Innocent Jesus is taking the place of the true criminal, the true sinner. He's taking the weight of the very sin that Barabbas had committed upon his shoulders. You see the incredible supernatural irony in this picture. Now, now John's only presenting it this way because that's what happened. But there's something so much deeper going on here, isn't there? Something so much more supernatural going on here. This is a picture of substitutionary atonement. Jesus, who lived the perfect life, fulfilling every aspect of God's law to a T, came to be condemned for sins he did not commit. He came to stand in the place of every sinner and to set us free from our sin. He came to take upon his shoulders the very sin you committed this morning or last week or or last month or your entire life. He took it all and was declared guilty by God on our behalf, though he was completely innocent. And he took the wrath of God against that sin that we deserved so that we could be free from our sin, have our chains released, and have access to God. In this picture, we are Barabbas. We are the criminal in chains. And sin is the chain. The chain that rules over us. And unless we see ourselves as Barabbas, as a vile, wicked, convicted sinner, we cannot be born again. We must see this holy, holy, holy God and realize that we do not measure up to Him. That we have offended Him. We have sinned against Him. Who are we to talk back to Him? Who are we to question Him? Who are we to stand before Him? So many people think they've got a few questions they're going to ask God when they die about why things happened the way they did here on earth. When we, when we stand before God, we will instantly understand how sinful we are when we see ourselves in the light of His holiness. And for those who do not place their faith 
in Jesus the only remedy. They will know exactly why they will spend eternity apart from Him. And they'll understand that they deserve it. It'll be too late. This morning as we close, I know most of us are believers here, but I still have to ask, do you know Him? Do you truly know Him? Do you know this Jesus who has taken your place? The Bible is not about trying to be a better person. It's not about this just picture of love, just for a picture of love. It's not about anything else. It's about the fact that the Son of God left the glory of heaven to come to this earth, suffer everything that we have suffered and more, and then take upon His shoulders our sin and take the wrath of God against that sin. And then God raised Him from the dead saying, it's finished. The penalty has been paid. My wrath has been satisfied. In Jesus, you may come. Pilate could have come. Judas could have come. You can come this morning. I don't care where you are. You can come. Please come. Don't wait another second. Bow your heads right now and, and, and come. And you come through repentance and faith. And I am going to ask you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes, if you will. And we come through repentance of sin. And that sin that has nailed Jesus to the cross. Repent this morning. And that means I'm walking towards sin. I'm walking towards my earthly kingdom. I'm so concerned about me, me, me. And I'm turning around. And I'm now walking towards Jesus. Forsaking my sin. That doesn't mean you'll be perfect. But I forsake the sin that has nailed Jesus to the cross. And I'm turning to Jesus as Savior and as Lord of my life. He is Master now. That only happens through humility. If the Spirit of God is knocking at the door this morning, humbly answer. If He's convicting you of sin this morning, then repent. Don't wait. Repent. And if you do, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Any may come. Will you do that this morning? I hope you will. Whether you're listening online or you're here in this room, if you don't know Jesus, what are you waiting for? Please come. Please. I beg you. Christians, we need to hear this too. We need to be constantly reminded of this gospel. That Jesus 
sees us as we are and chose to die for us anyway. I hope that makes you love him more this morning. I hope that pushes you towards faithfulness this morning. I hope it inspires you to go out of here today and stop worrying about every little thing that doesn't hold eternal value and to be on mission for His kingdom. With all of your resources, all of your gifts, all of your abilities, all of who you are, to be on mission for Him. Are we living for that eternal home? Or are we like Pilate, like those religious leaders, like, like Judas, blinded by the temporary pleasures of this world? And those rule our moment-by-moment decisions we're on. That's the question I'll leave you with this morning. Maybe sin you need to repent of this morning. I don't know. There may be worry that you need to hand over this morning. I don't know what's on your heart. If you need to know Jesus this morning, then know Him. He's offered Himself freely to you. He's not hiding. But you might be running. Come to him this morning in humility. Be honest with him. He will reveal himself to you. As we close, I'm going to give you a few moments to do what you need to do with Jesus. I'm going to close in a song. I'll be in the back if you need. Uh, if you want someone to pray with. Thank you.